Still ABF. Any questions? Sarah Brock. Um, we got a question right here. Sarah Brock. Okay, I have missing blanks and a question. Okay, missing blanks. Okay, so I'm missing the first three. So number one, I'm missing both of those blanks, and then flesh a. and spirit. Flesh and spirit, and then a after that. Union. We are created as a union of spirit and matter. Be, hold the mic. Any other missing blanks? <coughs> okay, your question, Sarah. Elise okay. got some missing blanks. Number two, we are made and we are obligated. We are made and we are obligated. Point two, oh. sub B, sub one, or I, whatever is it he does with? I didn't he commands that. us. He commands us. As he pleases. Okay. All right. Sarah, your question. Okay, so this is something that my Bible curriculum has had me teaching my fifth and sixth graders a lot. Um, and the question that they've asked me a lot, and I haven't always known how to respond to, is um, when God has made us a certain way, so good at something or bad at something, yeah. and we want to get better at that. Yeah. Like if you're bad at sports and you want to get better at it, it's okay for us to practice. Yes. But then it's not okay for us to want to change who God has physically made us to be. Right. So where do we draw the line on that? Well, it, you draw the line at it by getting back to motivations. And first of all, like, are we pursuing something that's good? So, is there a good in being better at baseball, better at music, better at math? I think I think there is. I think we can put that in the category of loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. We can put a lot of those things under dominion of the world. We can put those things under living in this world skillfully. Um, there may be harder things to get at. Like, Lord, I really want to get better at Call of Duty. That honestly may be a worthless pursuit for some. You know what I mean? Um, so it, it's not simply wanting something, but you need to be able to biblically define how this is good. We need to do all things to the glory of God. Um, you know, and so someone may want to change their appearance purely so that others would admire them. Like, that's, not, that's not good, right? So I'd want to press back to like, okay, why? I mean, and, and so two people may want the exact same thing for very different reasons. One person may want to be a better baseball player for the glory and the honor. I want the crowd to cheer me on. Well, that sounds like idolatry to me. Someone else may want it for good, righteous reasons. I, I want to be skillful. I want to do this heartily. I, you know, I, I enjoy the game. It's great. Um, so it gets back to what you're doing. Why is this good? What's the value in it? And um, what's your motive? So it needs to have some legitimacy. You don't want to do worthless things or wicked things. And then why do you want to do this? If it's not worthless, and I'm making worthless and wicked two different categories. No value, negative value. Worthless and wicked. If it's not worthless, it's not wicked. Are your motives for doing this in any way good? Well, then if they are, then pursue it, pray for it, run after it. Absolutely. But you got to, I think, get through those gauntlets. It's not simply, well, I want that's the logic of the autonomous self, where the pure presence of a desire justifies. And no, we're, we're owned, we're bought with a price, we're, we're, in that sense, we need to be able to work through those things. Um, does that get where you're going with that? Okay. Oh, good question. Next. Is getting counsel a good thing on that, too? Praise God. Praise God. Anybody? I've got a lot of people here. Come on. Can we start with the body half first, the, the, the embodiment? Does that, does that click and make sense? Um, 
Yes. No. Uh huh. Okay. Um, Jake. I think that your point on that we are both body and spirit and that the body has a value and can't be simply cast aside or discounted when it comes to what we do with it <laughs> is important. Because I think, like you said, even historically in the church, well, there's precedent for that. What was the name of the church? Was it Origen? The guy who basically <laughs> he castrated, himself. castrated himself because yeah. he didn't want to deal with any form of urges, and he thought the body was just yeah. dirty and awful. Yeah. Well, and Augustine, I mean, Augustine comes out of uh, uh, living with a concubine. What? Augustine? Okay, Doug. Um, um, Augustine. Um, what? What? Sorry, what else? Thank you. Uh, yes. Yes. Him, who shall not be named... Prior to his conversion, sexual immorality was, was one of his great sins, his vice. He, he lived with a concubine he had for years and years, had a son with. And so coming to conversion, he so swings the other way. And priestly celibacy is already on the rise. And the monastic tradition is already... The monastic tradition basically begins with Constantine. Because once Christianity is no longer persecuted and underground... Part of the church saw it be incorporated in the culture as worldliness, and so they went off to hide in the desert. And that led, leads to, we want to just contemplate God and experience the esoteric ecstasies of contemplation and be rigorous in our discipline of the body. And so it's moving in that direction already. Augustine, Augustine comes along, and uh, he, he, he goes so far as to say the only value of sexual relations is that it produces virgins. Because in his mind, sinful sexual desire is so intertwined in and around sexual desire, he couldn't conceive of it being a pure thing. It would be contaminated. So he, he recognized in Genesis 2, there it is. And so he would conclude all of the, the power and the strength with which we encounter it would be absent. So I think he made statements like it would be no more significant to them than you know, eating, eating food or drinking a glass of water would be the conjugal act. And so for him, all of the passion and power and all of the strength of it is purely an evidence of the sinfulness of it and therefore something to be resisted and fought. And, and that, of course, eventually leads to priestly celibacy because if you're more spiritual and you're more godly, then you're just going to be pursuing spiritual things and you're, you're not going to be dealing with this body and this world. That, that's the sort of the trajectory that it's on. But that, that's sort of where it comes from. Um, it's in many respects the same logic we get in other things. Since sexual sin can enslave people, let's just be asexual. That's the same logic with with alcohol. Since alcohol can enslave, let's just be teetotal. It's the same logic used with anything. Well, that was their mentality. They saw around them in the Corinthian world and the Roman world all sorts of sexual debauchery and all sorts of sexual perversion. And so wouldn't it just be simpler just to say no, period? And so in 1 Corinthians 7, you've got married people trying to live celibately. Like, you know, like the Dick Van Dyke show with the two separate beds. I mean, that's, that's what they're trying to do. And Paul says, stop it. Um, and, and part of that is these are good things. In the right place and in the right time and in the right way, this is good. Um, and, and so there's always a temptation to be super spiritual and just want to pursue God with the mind. And uh, we've got, we got to fight against it. Yes, Kathy. Um. I'm still formulating this question, but, and I don't know if this is the time you want this asked, but, you know, when you are trying to discuss this with people, 
how do you discuss it in the if they don't believe in God? Well, I think one of the things you can do is you can show the incoherence of the other view. So personhood theory is is largely incoherent because so so part of what I'm trying to throw out, and we'll talk about this a lot next week because this is really integral. To, I mean, it's most clearly visible. The reason we're doing the order is I think you can see how these two issues clearly interface with abortion, really clearly. And then it, it's, you can still see it in the, the other two examples, but most clearly, most readily, and least controversially in abortion. So in one sense, as we apply them, it's the, it's the clearest example. But um, so for us, we're saying, and what I would say, I'll say next week is this, if biblically... Where you have the union of soul and body, you have a living creature. And where they separate, you have death. So if we're dealing with something that is a living being, if we can look in the womb and see that's a living human, we should assume and default that's a full and fully ensouled being. Because, I mean, now, I, I get that James isn't trying to make an absolute medical metaphysical statement. But what we've got is this equation that the body apart from the soul is dead. So if we've got a living body gestating... I would assume, I would default to, I would say all the evidence is on the side of that is a fully ensouled being. Just because the, the, the child in the womb is not doing calculus. Well, you and I aren't doing much when we're sleeping or when we're, we're unconscious. We don't stop being people. So that'd be one thing. But then, so they have to just simply say this is personhood. Well, I, I didn't go into this in my notes because I was trying to get done in one message or not two. But let me give you some of the criteria that is suggested for personhood theory. Because there's really no agreement. So depending on what school of thought you're coming from, because this is a big deal. At what point does a person stop being a lump of flesh and a collection of cells that has no inherent value or dignity and suddenly be someone who we put you to death if you kill? That's a big divide, right? And when we look at the, the, the development of a child or the slide into senility of someone with Alzheimer's, it's a, it's a slippery slope. It's not a sudden jump. It's not like one day, the kid in the womb, the, the brain's working. It's this really incremental thing. So that's a challenge for them to say, okay, now there's, there's value in life. So here's some of the suggested frameworks. Okay, so with like Descartes, who came up with I think, therefore I am, it's going to be cognitive function. It's going to be um, consciousness, self-awareness, awareness of time, past, present, future. Because what we're trying to do is rule out animals. I mean, we're trying to draw this circle so it just gets us. And maybe dolphins, you know, and, and the higher level mammals or something. Um, so a naturalist, sort of like Hume and Descartes, they'd, they'd put it on. It's, but the critique of this approach of awareness of time, desire, wanting, choosing, capable of framing the world, generating plans, is this all performance-based. So then uh, Charles Taylor comes in and he says, okay, that, that can't be it because when you're unconscious and you're not performing, you don't stop being a person. Really, it's, it's about having things mattering to you. And we don't, and the animals want things, but we have no indication that they care about things. Well, this is all speculative. How do you know? Right? Okay, so then um, Harry G. Frankfurt comes in, and it's, it's self-reflection. He thinks we're the only animal that can look at ourselves, observe ourselves in some sense from the outside, and then want to change. So someone can say, I want to be a better husband, or I want to drink less, or I want to um, exercise more. Animals don't seem to, they seem to have, this guy's talking all about like level one desires and level two desires, level one desires, I want the food, or I want to chase the mouse, or whatever. And again, you press it, and it's arbitrary. And it's not a clear circle, and it's by no means clear when a child enters into it or when an adult enters out of it. But you want to press it even further. If you want to say it's cognitive ability, does that then mean, I'd ask somebody, if you're smarter than me, you're more of a person than me? 
If you're, if you're more intelligent and you're more self-actualized, if you score higher on these things than I do, you're more of a person than I am. We've got a dark history of non-person humans. The 14th Amendment was an attempt to put an end to that in our chapter of history. And there were some people in Europe who talked about uh, life undeserving of life. Before the Nazis made concentration camps to kill the Jews and others, they were, they were killing the, and euthanizing the disabled, the handicapped, same logic. And so the second you've got human non-persons as a category, we should be able to point out just what type of damage that's done and what type of bad fruit that is born. Those are the lines I'd want to talk to someone along. Um, so what we're saying is being a living human you're a full human at that point, living human with full dignity, full rights. That, that's what we're arguing a biblical worldview would be. Because both of us have to attach this monumental shift of value to something. Because I think we ought to treat a dead body with respect. But, but, you, but a dead body is not nearly as valuable as a living human being, right? I mean, there's a massive shift in rights and in ethical import for a living human and even a dead body. We recognize that. So for us, but for us, there is a really clear black and white line of life and death. It really is like a cataclysmic shift. There's no grade, right? There's no, there's no grade. I mean, you might debate over five minutes of time when someone's dead, but within, you know, within an hour or two, we're all going to agree that person's alive or that person's dead. But on the other scale, where you're trying to use, oh, here's another one, philosopher Thomas White, life has to be self-aware, has to have positive and negative feelings, has to have emotions, a sense of self, controls its own behavior, recognizes other people. I mean, and there's, no, there's no agreement in the, in, the, in the secular world over what constitutes a person. And it really seems like we're just trying to draw a circle that keeps us in and the things we don't want in out. And, and so those are the places I'd press along, like, how, do, how does this happen? When does this happen? When does it get constituted? Um, and does that on the decline lead to euthanasia? I mean, already we've had accounts of, of, of courts um, letting people who are, who are otherwise healthy, mentally not doing so well, die, right? Um, again, we'll deal with some more of this next week. It's, it's unpleasant stuff. But I'd press along those things. Like, I would try to show your view is incoherent. Your view doesn't work. Now, I know you don't believe the Bible and you don't believe my account. I mean, I'd want to tell them what I believe, but if they reject it, I don't believe that. Okay, can I take a few minutes and try to show you how your answer doesn't work? It, it, it is flawed and incoherent and yields bitter fruit. Um, that, that's along the lines I'd try to press with somebody, if they were open to reason, you know, if, they, if we could have a dialogue. Like, help, help me understand this. Like, <laughs> um, that, anyway. Any other thoughts along that line or questions along that line? And, and part of our last message, Kathy and Elsa, Jake, if you want to set Elsa up in the queue, part of our last message is going to deal with that as well, interfacing with the world. Oh, there's somebody else in that back. Oh, you're, sorry. Marion's next, then Elsa. Marion. So is that what they are using, um, like the personhood argument for yeah. um, what I've heard now is like some are okay with ending life up yes. to two years. Yeah. Oh, oh no. like oh. deciding uh, like what some... age does that, that matter? I oh. mean, I know in the state of the union, you know, our president talked about ending partial birth, um, once and for all. Right. Um, but you know, you hear people talk about, well, up to a certain age, it's still, it could still be legal. A Princeton theologian, Peter Singer. Um, it's bad theology, but it's not science. It's theology. Oh no, he, it's theology. 
He can call it what he wants. It's theology. It's bad theology. When you're talking about personhood, you're talking about a spiritual category. It's not empirical. It's, it's theology. Call it what it is. It's a belief system and a religion. It, sorry, I did, that was not a slip-up. I know I slip-up plenty. That was an intentional thing. Um, fair enough. Now, let me read you Peter Singer, because he's just taking this and running with it hard. He concludes, really, it's not until somewhere between two and three that you achieve enough of personhood for Peter Singer to think your life has value. This is a Princeton teacher, and you'll hear some quotes next week. Um, yet bioethics is not driven by such practical considerations. Peter Singer expresses the dualistic worldview when he insists that the concept of a person is distinct from that of a member of the species, homo sapien, and that it's personhood, not species membership, that is significant. If you fail to meet that standard, you're just a piece of matter. Your body can be used in experiments, harvested for organs. So he would say up until two or three years old, you ought to be able to kill a child. Yeah. He also has said elsewhere that a pig um, evidences more personhood than very, very young children, yeah. and therefore he thinks has more of a right to life. If you're going to do experimentation, you'd be better suited doing it on newborns than you would on, on, on higher-level mammals. This, this is, but it's just consistently applied. If you believe this premise, and that's the other thing you can do, is press them yeah. to these unacceptable conclusions. Thankfully to the image of God in man and the conscience of man, most people recoil at that type of stuff. Peter Singer is just being consistent. But I, what's, I challenge them, like, what's he doing wrong there? What's, if your premise is right, how is Singer wrong? Because most people, thank God, are not willing to go there yet. Most people's consciences are not that hardened. But he's just applying the rationale consistently. And so what's, what's wrong with it? Um, it already, we've, they've, the courts have ordered that children who've survived abortions stop being put on life support. And so we're no longer talking about in the womb. We're talking about if you intended to kill the child, you get to kill the child even if it survives the first attempt and is living outside of the womb. This is in our country. I mean, this is, and these are courts. These aren't things in back alleys. This is, this is taking place under the rule of law. Um, it's, it's horrific. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's peer-reviewed, writes in journals. He's highly respected. Yeah. Peter Singer. Yeah. 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 You can no, look yeah. up Peter Singer. I mean, he's got, I, mean, I, think, I think that people on his side wish he'd shut up because he says these inflammatory things, but he's just saying the rational conclusion of the premises. Elsa. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to say. If you talk to people like this, you need to question them, don't confront them, mm. and walk them down the path they're going and show them what the logical conclusion is of their beliefs. Because it's not an isolated belief. It has an impact on many other things because you're opening the door to many other things and it really becomes horrific at the end of it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, let me, I'll give you the quote. If you want to look up that quote about three-year-olds, while you get the mic over there. Um, it's footnote 23. Um, huh. oh, this doesn't have, okay, go. Who's got the next question? Yes, yeah, so, This is kind of a continuation, I guess, off of my, my sister's point. So I was just thinking to myself as I was making my notes, um, if it's okay, like say I want to get in shape because you know I want to pursue a career to take care of my family that requires me to be in shape or whatever, uh, what's the difference then really uh, 
if I could, you could argue that I have a good motivation, then what's the difference really in surgeries to change my shape versus working out? It's just a difference in, in level of intensity if you get down to it. Sure. It, so if, if you got in an accident and your body was deformed and you had reconstructive surgery to fix your face or your shoulder, I, I mean, you got to press it through. Okay, what is the good in this? And so the good would be something like this accident um, that has damaged my face, has marred my, my being. It's, it's an evidence of brokenness, and we're trying to heal, hide, cover up, and, and fix that brokenness. Great. Okay. So it's not on that premise alone that you're going to have a problem with transgender. You have to deal with the fundamental issue of being made. I mean, it's, it's, that's not a sufficient argument. You're right. If all things were equal, if there were no issue, if gender were a social construct, then simply because we can pursue good things. But what the premise there is, you're saying is, if it's a good thing to swap genders, then why can't we do it? If we could, if, if it's a good thing, there's no reason not to do it. You've got to solve that on other issues. Like, is that a good thing? Does that, does that make sense? Like, I'll use the, the, the working out thing. What if the reason you're working out, not you, a person is working out, is so they can attract women to have adulterous affairs while they're married? That'd be a terrible reason to work out, right? Yes? No? Okay. So, so motivation yeah. matters. Yes. Motiva- okay, I hope we can all agree on this. Motivation matters, and what we're doing, whether it's lawful, matters. So I will have to show in the week on transgender that God made us gendered for his glory and for his purposes. If that's the case, then pots don't get to say to potters, why have you made me this way? Does that make sense? So I, I have not established that yet. I haven't argued for that yet. And there'll be a, a week where I deal, deal, deal with that. That gender, or properly speaking, sex, the, the terms have been confused. Gender, as recently as 10 years ago, was purely a, a, a filial of, of language term. Words had gender. You know, Spanish, you got a masculine, feminine, neuter words. People had sex. And I mean by the, the or male or female, sorry. Um, so no, so properly speaking, the sex of the twins are female. Not the gender, properly speaking. Now, in the last 10 years, that's so colored that it probably is. I'm sure the Websters would, would recognize this new meaning for gender. But that's a, a relatively new development. Um, so the, I would have to argue, and I intend to argue, that the gender, or sex, is intentional, is part of the design, and so changing that is fighting God's design. That's what I have to argue, and I intend to argue. have not argued that yet. So I don't think yet I've made a sufficient argument against transgenderism. Okay. Um, I'm laying a foundation that I intend to build on in the coming weeks. Sorry, real quick before I hand it off. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if I'm working out to make myself, say, a better temple for the... My body's a temple. I'm working out to make myself a better temple. Yeah. You know, I want to glorify God in that way. Then what's to stop me from making the argument? Well, I think that changing my gender or changing my physical shape in that kind of way through surgery uh, makes me a better temple, and therefore it is good. Come back in three weeks and find out. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a big issue, and I don't want to take a two-minute answer. Like I got a whole... Sunday morning message answering that exact question. So if you can be patient, I'll, I'll go. Um, I, the simple answer would be God saying male and female, he made them. That, that, that the sex is intentional on God's part, and that God's glory is in that, and God's saying the woman is the glory of the man. And So what has God made? And embrace that. And if God made you thing A, and you're like, well, I want to be thing B, that, that's along the lines where I'd say, no, God clearly made you one way. It's your job to embrace that. But you, in the back. Um, 
some denominations of theology uses the Genesis reference that you read this morning as with the breath of life to be their argument for abortion. What would, what's the... Oh, no, that's, I, I wrestled with that. No, the, so the argument would be, I, or let me put it to you as the challenge, not you, but all y'all. Um, someone says, yeah, I believe um, it would be wrong to kill an ensouled body. I'm not convinced that children in the womb are ensouled. So according to Zechariah 12.1, God himself takes credit for forming the spirit of man within him. What makes you so certain, Pastor Jeremy, that God has formed the spirit in an unborn child? Something like that. Would that be the argument? Right? So someone says, yeah, I totally agree where you've got an ensouled body. It's holy, it's sacred. I'm just not convinced the child in the womb is ensouled. Um, that, I'll deal with that next week, but I'll deal with that now. Fine. And because it's closer, Matthew, I'm more ready for this. So, um, uh, The equation we get is the man became a living creature when the two came together. So what I would argue is um, if we can look in the womb and see a living creature, we've got an ensouled body. James gives us the other end of the equation. For just as the body without the soul is dead. So is the thing in the womb dead? No. Then I would assume, biblically, it's ensouled. We go to other attributes. John the Baptist in utero rejoices. Now, I think that's a morally significant act. Now, you can say it's a late stage. Um, But John the Baptist in utero is performing morally significant action. Under Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, no doubt, right? And then you get statements like the Psalms, the wicked go astray from the womb or from birth speaking lies. Um, you've got David talking about how a moral, in sin I was conceived, there's a morality attached to him even as a, he's a moral agent even at his conception. Yeah, that's Psalm 51.5. So all the evidence suggests we're dealing with moral agents and in soul beings as far back as we can go. Now, if you wanted to really argue, if someone came in, I mean, I was talking to Daniel about this. If somebody came in and said, you know, I, I don't think they get ensouled till the seventh day. I don't know how I'd refute that except to say, what on earth makes you argue that? No, no, I mean, I mean, can I prove when God creates the soul? No. What I get, all the instructions I get are soul and flesh equals he becomes a living creature. Is that a living creature inside of you? Yep, okay, then I'm going to assume that's a souled body. Does that, does that make sense? That's... That's all the instructions I've got. Um, and James, if that body is without a soul, it's dead, according to James. So, again, not insisting that James is trying to make a medical, metaphysical statement. But I think he is building off assumptions from Genesis 2. That the best instructions we have would suggest that would go that way. Does that, does that make sense, Kevin? That would be my answer. Is there's not a shred of evidence suggesting the opposite. Yes, JP. Well, remember, we don't need to prove, they need to prove that every time that's true. We just yes. need to say there's enough doubt yes. in there to yeah. not do it at all, right? right? Yeah, no. So, so if someone wanted to say, if someone said, no, I really believe it's the soul gets created on day three, prove me wrong, I'd say, I, I, I don't no, even know where to we begin. Need to be able but, to just but, I, but I'd say, prove doubt, that position right? from the Bible, they couldn't. They couldn't, yeah. They, they, the burden of proof is on the one who wants to kill. Right. Right. When in doubt, you don't kill the possibly living thing. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. You got the Peter Singer quote? Well, just what's the article from? So anyone wants to look it up can. Did you just, if you just tell us the name of his, uh, the article, I'm sure we can look it up. 
Okay. Yeah, yeah. If you just even do a web search, Peter Singer infanticide, you will find plenty. I, I certainly did. It's not hard to find. Jacob. You talked about specific creation. Everyone in this room is created, but I am created specifically, and it's all according to God's will. Mm-hmm. If someone were to pose a question and say, well, I was created without a leg. I was created with a deformed face. I was created with a chromosomal abnormality. My sexual dimorphism is messed up. Yeah. Can you comment on how that would affect our obligation to a creator? Ab- ab- no, absolutely. So, and again, these are things we'll hit in the coming weeks, but I will, I will try, to, uh, try to deal with that here. So let's, let's take someone born blind. Take a simple example, right? There's a brokenness in blindness. Blindness only exists in a fallen, sinful world. There won't be any blind people in the kingdom and in the resurrection, right? Okay. So this is an evidence of the fall. So I'll take it a step back. How does one operate medicine to the glory of God? We're honoring the image of God in man, and we're trying to promote life and health. We're trying to restrain the effects of the curse and the fall. That's what we're trying to do when we do medicine. Um, and that's how we do it in faith. And we don't just say, well, if God's decreed the sickness, who are we to get in the way? No, God has made it clear how to interpret these things. These are evidences of the brokenness, the groaningness, the fallenness, the, 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 the decay in this world. And we're fighting against it in the same way that pesticides fight against the thorns of the ground, right? So, so when we know what the pattern is, and when someone's born against the pattern, they're born without a limb, they're born blind, we recognize that brokenness. Or, or as Samuel's mother, right, Hannah, her husband is, 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 is loving her, and, and the Lord has closed her womb. Here's another brokenness. Here's another. And it's, it's viewed simultaneously as real suffering. She's really suffering. It's not just, well, God made you that way to so rejoice. It's the difference between, though, Hannah coming to the Lord with a request and a petition, which is what she does, or Hannah coming saying, you better explain yourself. You know, I got rights. And I don't like the way you made this pot. This pot doesn't have handles, and it should have handles. That's the exact language of Isaiah. So the first point would be just accepting who God made you to be does not mean you have to like every bit of it. If you were born blind, you don't have to be like, I like blindness. You're not somehow obligated to that. The man born blind in in John's, John's? John's gospel, John chapter 9, he's born blind for the glory of God, yet he wants to see. If I can see, I'd like, you know. Lord, if you teach her, if you can make me see, make me see. It's being willing to be blind. If God, so it's it's Paul saying, "Remove this thorn from me." Yet when God says, "My glory is, my power is made strong, my sorry, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is seen in your weakness." It's Jesus saying, "Not my will, but yours be done." It's coming with a request, not coming with a demand. So I don't want anyone to think I'm saying you're obligated to just accept. Suck it up and like whatever deficiencies you see in yourself. By all means, as a child, come to your father and ask if, 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 if you know, whatever it is. And he cares for us. You want to be better at baseball? Ask your father for that. I mean, make sure you've got good reasons for what you're asking for. You know, you don't want to come to God saying, Lord, help me work out so I can, you know, attract the secretary behind my wife's back. Like, that, that would be a bad prayer. But, um, but if you've got something you're asking for that's lawful and something you've got some sort of... Mo- motivation that seems good, ask for it. And be willing to be who God has made you to be. That, that's, that's the other issue. But if God says no, do I get angry? Do I feel wronged or hard done by him? And that's going to be the temptation um, for people who want things. Everyone else seems to have it. Why not me? Everyone else can see. 
Why not me? You start to grumble and become discontent, and that's when you round the corner to something wrong. And that's where I think you go from a child being comforted by their parent to who do, who do you think you are? Which is where you get those passages. Not a ton of them, but there definitely are some of them. Who do you think you are, pot? Right? I mean, and that's when we raise our fist. So by all means, come with petitions, come with requests, come with confusion. I don't understand. I don't like it. This is hard. Like, amen. We should, we should weep with those who are struggling. We should walk with those who are struggling and not say, oh, the Lord made you blind. Rejoice. He's got good purposes. Like, no, we should weep with people who have, who have disabilities, infirmities, and weaknesses. Um, but we, what we can't do is raise our fist as though we're coming with rights. That's when we stop coming as the creature, and we're coming as a lord, we're coming as a ruler, we're coming as a potentate. That's, that's when we know we've crossed the line. Um, yes? Um, I just had a question. So when we talk to people that don't have a biblical view of flesh and spirit, um, what do they do with the mind then? Because I'm here, Jeremy. <laughs> Oh, there you are. Okay, sorry. I'm like, someone's talking. There we go. Okay. Yeah. What do they do with the mind? Because your physical body isn't just going to do something with, a, and I don't mean to go all sciencey here, oh, but no. like with your brain or nerves communicating with it. So when they say my body just has this desire, what do they do then with the brain behind your body? Well, there's not a clear consensus. The consistent ones, guys like Sam Harris who at least has the, the decency of being consistent, will say, your mind is an illusion. Because you're, you're, if you're a materialist, everything boils down to atoms doing what atoms do at a certain temperature. I mean, everything is atoms bouncing around. So, you, so a strict naturalist is going to be a determinist. Because you're only going to do what the atoms bouncing around your brain are going to have you do. You may think you have choice. You may feel the sensation that you're experiencing things. But really, you're a machine, and the crank's turning, and you're going to do exactly what you're going to do and no other. And, and guys like Sam Harris will admit this, that, that consciousness is a very persuasive illusion. That your brain somehow, this is arousing through, arousing, my mom, sorry mom, she's going to listen. Arousing's not a word. It has arisen through evolutionary processes that apparently somehow animals that have this illusion adapt and survive better. And so your brain has created this really compelling illusion of consciousness. And that really, it's an illusion. And so he, I mean, I've heard him talk. He's, he will agree, you are your body. He's actually a consistent materialist. What usually happens is they see the glory and the wonder in the mind and the consciousness, which, which naturalism cannot account for. How you can get from matter to minds is a leap. Well, it's the same leap from matter to life, right? I mean, you can get sort of the steps of the way, then you've got to sort of quickly move to life. Um, because bridging that gap, we can't do that. We can't take recently dead bodies and make them alive. Like, we can't take somebody who died two days ago and bring them back to life. We, we can't instill the spark of life. Um, and Minds are the same thing. We try doing stuff with AI, and we can't. We, there's a mystery here. So usually, what they'll say is something like, "We don't have enough sophisticated." It's a punt. We don't have enough sophisticated understanding of what's going on, but we trust that we will. And the consistent materialists will admit we're machines. We're, we are biomechanical machines, and a free will and the mind is an illusion. It's a really powerful and persuasive illusion, but it's an illusion. You're just a collection of atoms and molecules, and your brain's just a biochemical machine. And it's just as predictable and just as determined as any computer we have. Um, it's just really sophisticated and really, really compelling. That, that's, 
though that, and that's partly where I'd want to press, press them on. You know what I mean? Because if no, because think about it. If you're if you're a naturalist, everything has a natural explanation. Everything. There is nothing other than nature. You can't appeal to anything outside of nature. So why did you choose this item on the menu, not this item? You're going to have to eventually come down to something having to do with the laws of physics. You're going to have to. Because everything comes out of them if you're a naturalist. Absolutely everything. Now, you can punt it. We don't know how. But you can't appeal. There's nothing else. There's no other game in town. And so the logical conclusion of that is going to be biological determinism. And very few people are willing to go that far, look that in the face and say, okay, most people want to punt and say, it's just personhood, yeah, you know. And, and, and there's a sense in which they are responding to something true. They're seeing the glory of God in his creation. They're seeing his wonder. They're seeing how what Paul says in Romans 1, his wisdom and his power are clearly seen through the things that are made. And they see this wonderful, mysterious, great thing. And they're saying, we don't know how it came about, but we trust we will, but we know, it's ne- we know it wasn't God. We know that. Um, we know whoever it was, it wasn't God. It might have been aliens seeding the planet. That's the weird thing. That's, no, that's the weird thing. They're okay. Dawkins is okay with intelligent design as long as the designer's not God. Da- no, Dawkins, in an interview with Ben Stein, freely admits the theory of uh, exogenesis. I think that's the term for it. The thought that aliens or something outside of our planet planted life on this planet. So Dawkins is cool with the notion of intelligent design. He's just opposed to certain designers. Um, that's, no, no, I mean, I'm not trying to be flippant. I'm, I'm just saying, but when, when we talk about where minds come from, you can tell by the lack of, by the lack of um, uniformity of their answers. They don't know. And, and fair enough, there's certain things we don't understand. There's certain things we don't know how they work. But there isn't any clear consensus about how minds work. There, there is no, that I'm aware of at least, um, clear consensus on that point. I mean... Uh, I don't claim to be, the, the, like, to be up to date on everything, but last time I was reading or checking on these things, there was no clear consensus on how minds arise out of matter. Um, yes, Laura. Okay, so you said earlier, when in doubt, don't kill the living thing. No, what I've said, oh. that's what JP said. Oh, okay. What I said, what I would say um, is we need, as we approach the question, we need to assume and have sufficient warrant to do something. Um, and and I, I'm assuming I know what you're talking about. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I, the short answer is going to be, it's a weighty and heavy thing. The punt, the easy answer is, it's just a clump of cells. No, and you've got weighty decisions. You need to approach them with the gravity and the weight of what's going on there. And I, I believe you guys have, and others I know have. Um, we, we, there are situations where God's told us we can kill. It's not that we're forbidden in all times and all places from that. It's, it's, there are times we may have to choose whose life we're going to save. Two people are drowning. I can only save one. What I'm saying is it's a cop-out and a punt to say it's unimportant. The very, the very grief you're feeling expresses you know the reality, right? And it's, it's an evidence of brokenness. So all I'm saying is it's a morally significant, image-bearing, valuable being. And then we got tough choices in a fallen world. Does that... Does that Makes sense. Yeah, I was just making sure we didn't do the wrong thing. No, I don't. I don't. I do not believe you did. So, yeah, but you approach it as a weighty and heavy thing. It's certainly not a light thing, right? Um, right. Alex, going back to naturalism and yeah, you know everything being chemicals bouncing around in your brain. 
like the other side of, or the other symptom or outplaying of that is you lose all sense of morals. Yeah. Like, why did you kill that person? Well, the chemicals in my brain, that's just what they did. It's right. like, okay, well, how do you hold that person accountable for the chemicals just bouncing around no, no, in their that, brain? That's, that's where personhood theory is like a, a Hail Mary attempt to stop going down the vortex of nihilism. So I, I had a friend of mine who apostatized from a profession of faith, and he, he looked nihilism. Nihilism is the uh, worldview that says there is no meaning, there's no purpose, there's just matter, and that's it. Um, and, and if that's true, then what this clump of atoms does to this clump of atoms has no real significance. We, we might trick ourselves into thinking we feel about something a certain way, but the universe doesn't care. And so if you're a full-on nihilist, why, if, I think I, if I want to do something to harm you, I want to kill you, and I'm willing to take my chances of getting away with it. Like, hey, if they catch me, I'm going to throw me in jail. But if, if I want to take my chances, why ought I not to do that? And Nietzsche says there is no reason. That's the whole point Dostoevsky is trying to get to with crime and punishment, right? Anyone read? It's a really depressing book. Really depressing book. But, no, so Nietzsche puts out that there are certain people, Ubermensch, Supermen, who... Um, who transcends the, the herd morality, that morality is simply a herd mechanism to, to keep the herd in line. But some individuals are, are strong enough and big enough, and, and they rise above it. It doesn't apply to them. And this is Hitler's logic, right? So this guy decides he's going to prove he's an ubermensch, and he goes out and commits a senseless murder, and then is haunted by guilt till he turns himself in. That's, that's, I just ruined the story for you. I spoiled the punchline. But, that's, but it's Dostoevsky saying it doesn't work. No one can live that way. But so... So the world does not want to go into the nihilistic vortex and say the consistent application, which is your life has no value. My life has no value. I mean, I don't want you to kill me, but I've got no real reason why I can tell you not to. And so we see this, and everyone sees, the glory in minds. I mean, there's a glory of God in minds. And so without asking where does that glory come from or upon what foundation does it sit, they say, see that? Isn't that wonderful? And the world goes, yes, that's wonderful. That's what gives value. Okay. And now we got some anchor to stop us from drifting into total meaninglessness. But it's arbitrary. And if you start pressing around the edges, it's an arbitrary circle they've drawn. They've just seen something flashy and shiny and beautiful. And a, that, that's what gives meaning and value. And it, it doesn't hold up. But the culture, most people don't want to live life as if it has no meaning. Most people can't live life as if it has no meaning. And so we tend to be relativists and nihilists when it's convenient not when it's inconvenient. But nobody I know, even who's a relativist, you know, when it comes time for their paycheck, goes, well, if this is what they think the numbers add up to. They tend to be very scientific when it comes time to get paid. Um, and there's, there's objective truth then. You know? um, it's not, well, that, my truth is that's what you get paid. You know, no, no, this, these numbers add up. There's objective reality. It, generally, we become relativists um, in, in the spheres that are not our domain, our primary domain, and when it doesn't matter, or when we're trying to weasel out of things. Um, so, no, no, you're absolutely right. There is no, I'm convinced there's no escaping rel- absolute nihilistic relativism if you, if you unhitch yourself from God. I mean, this, these are the questions philosophers have been discussing since. Um, I mean, that, that, if you, anyone read the Brothers Karamazov? Anyone? Can man be good without God? That's one of the fundamental questions he's asking because when Nietzsche announces the death of God, the question is, well, then, does there go all morality? I would say absolutely. Absolutely there goes all morality. Um, and... Yet, people are trying to find a way to live without God and yet not have the chaos and meaninglessness of relativism and nihilism. And so they're just, they're just trying to 
put an anchor somewhere to hold them fast. And so personhood theory is the best they've come up with. Personhood theory, you know. Um, and it, it won't hold. So if you get a chance to talk to them, just ask questions to try to demonstrate the arbitrariness of it. Um, and just from any of the directions, you know, again, if you're smarter than me, does that make you more of a person than me? Um, is person is something I could lose somewhere in my life? I've attained to it now, but maybe not tomorrow. I mean, I, that's, that's the types of questions you've got to ask. And people are at least, we're close enough to the atrocities done during World War II and, and, and previously in our history when we would say people are, are human non-persons or half-persons that I think there's, the memory is still there of what horrible things can be done with such lies that I'd, I'd start trying to press them there. Oh, we're over time. Five minutes over time. Thank you much. God bless.